turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, we're going to look again at verses 14 through 17 as Brother Vern comes to give a public reading of the Word of God. Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. Thank God for his word. Then the disciples of John came to him asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Amen. Father, it is an honor and a privilege for me to herald this glorious book. And Lord, I'm, I pray, God, that I am pleasing in your sight, and I pray, God, that I am doing it to your glory and to the good of your people. I'm trying. And Lord, where I fail, God, I pray you will bring conviction into my heart and raise me up that I may do it better. I want to be biblical. I believe being biblical pleases you. I believe it helps people. And so I want to do those two things. And Lord, I pray, Father, that in the name of Jesus, your Son, that you would move in my heart today and give me unction and anointing, that I will herald this rightly and fully. Give these that you have gathered here today, those that are watching by means of the Internet, and those who will watch this at some later point in time, eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to believe. I pray your Spirit will defeat all unbelief and all doubt. I pray that you will save the soul of the lost. She will encourage those who have, who have grown weary of well-doing. And I pray, God, that you will do all these things to your own glory and to the good of your people. In Jesus Christ's most precious name, amen. You may be seated. To the glory of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, amen. Now we're continuing to examine uh, if fasting is the unshrunk cloth or the old wineskin of verses 16 and 17, as some people teach. In other words, are the people who say that fasting was an Old Testament truth that has been made obsolete by the entrance of the New Covenant, are they teaching the truth? Is it true that fasting has gone the way of Sabbath observance, going to the temple in Jerusalem once a year, the Levitical priesthood, tithing, the Sanhedrin court, animal sacrifices, and the dietary and ceremonial aspects of the Old Covenant? And one of the main reasons to reject such thinking is what Jesus himself said at the end of verse 15. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. But then three weeks ago we also began to look at five more reasons that the New Covenant teaches us that fasting is still a viable means of grace. Number one, New Testament believers should fast for God to raise up ministries that will change the world. Number two, New Testament believers should fast for waters that do not fail. Number three, New Testament believers should fast for the safety of the little ones. Number four, New Testament believers should fast for the Father's reward. 
And number five, New Testament believers should fast for the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. Last week we looked at number three, so let's look at number four. New Testament believers should fast for the Father's reward. Let's go to Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, I was introduced to the means of grace called fasting when I was 16 years old and I started reading the Bible. Then after being born again for a little over one and a half years, I read a book that was written in 1946 by an Assembly of God pastor named Franklin Hall entitled Atomic Power with God Through Fasting. I think everything done immediately after the Second World War had something to do with atomic power. Hall was a prominent part of the healing and tent revivals that swept over the United States immediately after the Second World War. And as a Pentecostal pastor, Hall was caught up in what became known as the Latter Rain Movement that introduced men like Oral Roberts, Jack Coe, A. A. Allen, R. W. Schambach to the world, as well as a man named William Branham. Hall developed what he called fasting techniques that he taught would benefit the entire human body, soul, and mind. Hall believed and taught that when fasting correctly, a person would receive what he called body-felt salvation, a term for physical healing where the fire of God would eventually protect the individual from all sickness and diseases. Hall also taught that fasting in the manner that he prescribed would free the individual from physical exhaustion as well as body odor and would empower the individual to be able to raise the dead. Now at 18 years of age, not only did I not know much about the Bible or Christianity or the difference between a charlatan and a true man of God, I didn't understand much about life. And so needless to say, that book really fired me up. And so fasting became a very important part of my walk with God. Now people have asked me why I, why I fell so hard for people who were at best misguided and at worst were heretics. And the answer is simple. I had no adult leadership to help guide me. But the truth is, I didn't go to the questionable, peop questionable people first. I went to the preachers and pastors and elders and deacons of mainstream churches first. And at least here on the coast, there was not a single church leader in 1971 or 72 that I personally spoke with who had any idea about fasting. They personally did not fast. They never taught about it, and they really didn't know that much about it either. Now keep in mind, this is way before the internet made acquiring information relatively easy. So what was I to do? I had already read what Jesus taught about fasting in the Gospels, and I knew that fasting was as fundamental and normal to the average Christian as prayer and Bible study. And yet beside the Pentecostal people, there were not a single church leader on this coast that I was personally aware of that could help me to begin a, an obedient and humble life of fasting, except a few people who were Roman Catholics and two young men who were members of the local Hare Krishna cult over in Bay St. Louis. I knew that in the church I grew up in, the Episcopal Church, they, that they at least made an attempt 
at fasting. But outside of that, not a single Protestant church from Biloxi to Gulfport could teach me about this important subject. I also soon realized that the biblical means of grace, of fasting, was almost unheard of and almost never practiced with my Christian friends at school who attended Baptist, Presbyterian, and Methodist churches. Beloved, that should have never happened. I should have been able to go to almost anyone who was in a position of leadership in any church to learn about a subject that has such a rich history in the Christian church. But there wasn't anyone. So I went to people who were not only personally fasting themselves, but who were very eager to teach me about it. So one of the reasons I'm going into this issue as deeply as I am is so that no one in this church or no one who reads what I have written about this subject will have to get involved in shady and wayward teachings about a subject that everybody who leads in the church should know in great detail. Now Hall and a slew of other full gospel, charismatic, Pentecostal, latter rain, or new apostolic preachers and teachers all agreed that fasting should be a regular part of our daily life in Jesus Christ. And even though they were and are wrong about a whole host of issues, I think their understanding about fasting is an accurate representation of what the Bible teaches. The reality is that during the first 30 years of my journey with Jesus, for me to find out anything about fasting required that I ask people who were either in outright cults are people who, although very sincere, belong to very dubious religious groups. And that is really a shame, because along with some very good information, I was also given some real bad info on fasting. For example, the man who taught me the most about fasting was a man who, as far as I could tell, went on a 40-day fast on nothing but water three separate times. And yet this man's theology was a cross between Roman Catholicism, Mormonism, and Pentecostalism. In other words, his teachings on communion, baptism, adoption, the Holy Spirit, even salvation itself was as off-base, unbiblical, and just plain weird as anyone I ever met. In addition, he was a serial adulterer and didn't seem to be opposed to lying repeatedly about very important subjects. So all of his efforts at fasting didn't seem to help him with even the basics of the Christian faith or even the basics of human morality. But he sure did push away from the table a lot. But I'm offended that the people who teach and practice fasting the most seem to be the people who are the least biblical. And that really bothers me and has caused me to want to set the record straight about this very biblical means of grace called fasting. The reality is that God created the human body in such a way that we have to eat to live. And so God honors any attempt at fasting for any length because we simply cannot fast continually. But there are issues about our bodies and our unconverted flesh that can be brought into alignment with the Word of God in no other way other than by fasting. And so as people who have experienced the miracle of the new birth, we should humble ourselves joyfully to the inspired, inerrant, and infallible teachings of God the Holy Spirit himself through the writings of over 40 different men over a 1,500-year time frame in the 66 books of the Holy Bible. And when we do that, we will find that fasting should be a part of the normal daily life of every genuine believer. 
Now, with many of our friends who attended Roman, Episcopal, Orthodox, Anglican, and other religious groups and churches, we are now in the time of the year called Lent. And Lent represents the 40 days that Jesus fasted. And so the custom in many of these groups is that their followers will fast during Lent to prepare themselves for Easter. So the, so the 40 days beginning on Ash Wednesday and going all the way to Maundy Thursday or Holy Saturday is a time of sacrifice, mourning, grief, contemplation, and prayer to prepare themselves to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And this custom began very early in the history of the church. For example, Athanasius, the hero of the Council of Nicaea, who God used to almost single-handedly rescue the church from the heresy of Arianism, said that Lent was, quote, a 40-day fast that the entire world observed, unquote. Augustine said, quote, our fast at any other time is voluntary, but during Lent we sin if we do not fast, unquote. But during the Reformation, the Protestants were very wary of joining in with others in remembering Lent, especially about the fast during Lent that was commanded and expected. So in 1536, John Calvin said that the idea about forcing people to fast during Lent was, quote, not a true imitation of Christ, unquote. Because neither the Jesus nor the apostles taught about specific times to fast. Now keep in mind that when Calvin wrote this, the leadership of the visible church at that time had compelled people to fast twice each week as well as during Lent for centuries. But even about Lent itself, Calvin said it represented, quote, a false zeal replete with superstition which set up a fast under the title and pretext of imitating Christ, unquote. And yet Calvin personally fasted all the time. The Puritan John Owen criticized the Roman system for the Lenten practice of fasting, saying, quote, the truth is they, talking about the Roman church, neither know what it is to believe nor what mortification itself intends. Such men know neither the scriptures nor the power of God, unquote. And yet Owen fasted frequently himself. In 1885, the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, said this about Lent and the obligatory fast associated with it, quote, it is as much our duty to reject the traditions of men as to observe the ordinances of the Lord. We ask concerning every rite and rubric, is this a law of the God of Jacob? And if it be not clearly so, it is of no authority with us who walk in Christian liberty, unquote. And yet Spurgeon fasted all the time. Today we are bombarded with information about fasting in order to lose weight and to help our bodies get healthier. And that is exactly what Franklin Hall and others taught 80 years ago. But Jesus taught something quite different about fasting. And I want to explore what he said this morning. In Matthew 6 and 16, Jesus gave us the promise, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So yes, there are great benefits to, be a dis to have a dif disciplined life that includes periodic fasting. But those benefits will go way beyond losing weight or having a healthier body. Jesus has promised us that God the Father will reward us when we fast in secret. So in the passage of Matthew 6, 16 through 18, Jesus assumed that fasting was a good thing and that it would be done by his disciples. This is what we see in Matthew 9 and 15, where Jesus said, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they, who he called the attendants of the bridegroom, will fast. 
In other words, while Jesus is in heaven, while he is sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high, while he is interceding for God's elect, his genuine disciples will fast. So Jesus is not teaching about whether we should fast or not. He is assuming that we will fast. Jesus is teaching us how to fast. And even more specifically, Jesus is telling us how not to fast. Dear friends, if fasting is going to become a common and normal way of life for us here at the Covenant of Peace Church, in addition to learning how to fast, we need to know how not to fast. And that learning would include practical teaching on how not to endanger our bodies, as well as spiritual teaching on how not to endanger our souls. But, what more, but, but more important than all of the learning and teaching is the warning that Jesus gave about the spiritual danger of fasting in the wrong way. And that's what Matthew 6, 16 through 18 is about. Jesus warned us what not to do and then tells us what to do instead. He warned us in verse 16 to not be like the hypocrites. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Now, as I've already told you that in context, the hypocrites that Jesus was talking about were the scribes and the Pharisees. And when he said these words in what we now call the Sermon on the Mount, the scribes and the Pharisees, as well as the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots were standing right there listening to Jesus say this. And I can almost promise you that when he said, don't be like the hypocrites, people turned around and looked at the Pharisees because they knew Jesus was talking about them. No wonder they hated him so much. And you notice nobody spoke out during that sermon either, right? That's right, because Jesus taught as one having authority and not like the scribes and the Pharisees. But the application of this verse is that anyone who carries out their spiritual disciplines, anyone who avails themselves of the means of grace for the purpose of being seen by men is also guilty of this. This is the reward of the hypocrites that Jesus warned us about. These hypocrites want to be seen praying or studying their Bibles. They want to be seen taking the Lord's table. They want to be seen giving or serving, and they want to be seen fasting. But why do they want to be seen by other people engaging with the means of grace? So that other people will think highly of them, so that other people will praise them, so that other people will think they are very spiritual. And Jesus warned us about this terrible hypocritical sin. But then he also gave us God's judgment that followed the sin of doing godly and spiritual things in order to be seen by other people. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Striving to be seen by other people when you engage in the means of grace will guarantee that you will be seen by other people. So the hypocrites will achieve what they work so hard to obtain, the praise of men. They will get the praise of men, but that's all they'll get. God will not honor their efforts at all. And as far as any spiritual benefit goes, it will be as though they had not fasted at all. But getting the praise of men is what our fallen flesh craves. Few things in this life are more appealing, more gratifying, more satisfying, more rewarding than to be recognized or praised or made much of for our accomplishments especially 
our religious accomplishments. And to be recognized as a godly person was the goal of everything the scribes and Pharisees did. That's why they did everything they did. These men did not love God, they were not saved, and they were not interested in doing anything for the glory of God. And that's why Jesus condemned them to their face. Now, we've, we've, we're, we're in nine chapters of Matthew, and already, I, I knew this and I preached this before I ever got into Matthew, but it is in your face the hostility and the tension between Jesus and the Pharisees. And you've got to explain that, because with everybody else, Jesus worked with them. He gave them an out for their sin. He told them to repent. He never, he, he, he told those Pharisees that they, how could you, he said in Matthew 23, how are you going to escape the damnation of hell? The diatribe in Matthew 23 is frightening. It, I never know God said that to any other group of people in the Bible except the Pharisees the people who were trying harder than anybody else to obey the law of Moses. Now, if you, if you just came into the Lord recently, you're going to say, well, it not, must be better not to try than to try. If you try, Jesus is going to condemn you. I, I'm telling you, this is a big deal. This is a huge issue, and, and, and I can't understand how many people just pass over it. I was uh, contacted recently by a medical doctor from Ocean Springs about one of my radio broadcasts, and he was just upset big time with me because I said there's not a single teaching in Judaism today that will forgive a single sin or save a single soul. Amen. There's not a single tenet in Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or Taoism or dialectic materialism or the religion of Confucius or any human philosophy that will forgive a single sin or save a single soul. Jesus said the most insulting, the most offensive statement anybody in the Bible ever said. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He's categorically condemning every other religion that tries to go to heaven some other way but through Jesus. And that includes Judaism. And so you, you, gotta, you gotta call a cat a cat. And, and so I said, you know, I wrote the guy back. I said, you can call me names all day long. It doesn't make anything you said true. I want people to be saved. And I know that people are not going to be saved if they're given comfort in their false religion. You're deceived. And I don't want you to be deceived. I care about your soul. So repent and come to Jesus. And I said, any day, any time, any time of the day, any, any way you want to do this, I will meet with you and take as much time with you as you want. He said, I don't really want to meet with you, but I really would like for you to meet with my rabbi. I said, put him in your pocket and bring him. <laughs> Amen. It's either the truth or it's not. And if it's the truth, it can withstand criticism. Praise the Lord. But today, being recognized or acknowledged or praised as a spiritual person or as a godly person or even a good person is the goal of every lukewarm and unsaved person in the modern church. It is what drives them to do what they do. It is the fuel that keeps them doing their spiritual duties. So these people may pray and read their Bible, but they do not love God. They may give money to the church, but they are not saved. They may even fast 
but they are not interested in doing anything for the glory of God. And that is why Jesus will condemn them to their face as they hear him say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. But why did Jesus say that fasting like this was hypocrisy? You ever think about that? He could have called it evil and I, I had no problem with it. Why did he say they were hypocrites? We need to remember that these were, the, we, these were very religious people. You don't pray as much as they did. Let's put it that way. You don't read your Bible as much as they read their Bibles. They, didn't, they weren't deceived because they didn't pray and they didn't read the Bible. They were deceived with their Bibles open and, on, and them on their knees. That's frightening. And, 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 and here's what I'm saying. Jesus never said one good thing about any of them. You got to explain that. They voluntarily chose to fast. Isn't that good? Isn't that noble? But instead of hiding the fact that they were fasting, they made it plain so other people could see. We call that honesty. Right? So why was that called hypocrisy? Why isn't it hypocrisy to fast and then hide the fact by anointing your hair, washing your face, and not letting anybody know that you're fasting? Isn't the very definition of hypocrisy trying to look better on the outside than you are on the inside? So all those religious leaders were doing was to allow reality to show, right? So they were actually the very opposite of hypocrites. They fasted, and they looked like they were fasting. No sham, no hiding. They were being real and genuine. So this logic would say that if you fast, you should not look any different on the outside than you are on the inside. So if you fast, you should look like you're fasting. Now, I don't know if any of you, Barbara may have, Sister Charlotte may have, Lynn has, I know Brother Byrne has, maybe some of you have seen people that's fasting 28 days, 30 days, 40 days on water. You've, you've been around that. You may have done that yourself. And those people don't look sparkle, sparkle, happy, happy. Number one, they're that big around. And they, it's hard to get up. When they get up, they pass out. You walk down an aisle, you're about to stumble and pass out. Your body's dying. And so those people, they, they may wash their hair and comb their hair and not appear. But everybody knows they're fasting because they've lost 80 pounds in a month. They either got pancreatic cancer or they're fasting. So the, I'm, I'm asking the question, why did Jesus call that hypocrisy? They weren't putting on a show. They looked like they were fasting. They wanted everybody to know they were fasting. That it was hard. That it took something out of them. Right? But Jesus called them hypocrites. Why? Because the heart that motivates fasting is supposed to be a heart after God. That's what fasting means. A heart hunger for God. So fasting is when the spiritual hunger of the heart overwhelms the natural hunger of the belly. But something is wrong here because the heart that was motivating this fast by the scribes and Pharisees was the same heart that craved human admiration. So in one sense, they were being open, honest, and transparent about what they were doing, yet that very openness is what deceived them. 
Because if they wanted to be truly open, honest, and transparent, they would have worn a sign around their necks that said, the bottom line reward I am seeking in this fast is the praise of men and not the glory of God. And that would have eliminated them from being hypocrites. Now, they still would have been terrible sinners, but they would not have been hypocrites because then they would have been openly and transparently vain, self-centered, and arrogant. So there are actually two great dangers that these fasting religious hypocrites have fallen into. Number one, they are seeking the wrong reward in their fasts, the praise and admiration of other people. And they seek that false reward precisely because they are lost and are yet in their sins. Number two, they purposefully hide this wrong seeking with an outward pretense of love for God. You see, fasting is supposed to mean there is a love for God in that individual, a deep-seated hunger for God. And with their outward actions, those religious leaders were saying they had a hunger for God, but that wasn't true because on the inside they were only hungry to be admired and approved by other people. And that's the God that satisfied them. But we are not deceived by the Roman religious system. And so we have to remember that all of the various means of grace are gifts that God has given to people who have already experienced the miracle of the new birth, people who have already been justified by faith alone, and people who have already been adopted by the Father. These wonderful gifts are not, however, the way that lost people are saved. They do not cause a lost person to be saved. And they do not do this because they cannot do this. Because all lost people are saved the same way. They must hear the gospel. They must accept or embrace or believe the gospel. And then they must obey the gospel, which is repent and believe. And the means of grace simply do not give the lost person what they need, which is new spiritual life in, by, and through the miracle of the new birth. So nobody is born again or justified or adopted because they pray or because they read their Bible, or because they fellowship with other godly people, or because they are baptized, or because they partake of the Lord's table, or because they give, or because they serve, or because they fast. We are born again by a sovereign act of God, and we are justified by the gift of saving faith, and we are adopted by a sovereign act of God alone. Where the means of grace come into play is during the time when already born again, justified, and adopted people are being progressively sanctified. Now, you may not know what I'm talking about. The means of grace, prayer, Bible study, fellowship, uh, the Lord's table, uh, fasting, giving, service, and there's probably a couple of other ones. Those are things that already saved people do to maintain their walk with God. It's the spiritual disciplines of this life. Because what the means of grace provide us is strength, encouragement, correction, and truth that will enable and empower the already born again, justified, and adopted soul to be both able and willing to walk this world in white. So now look again at verses 17 and 18. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Here Jesus gave them and us an alternative way to fast that the hip, the, other than the hypocrites engaged. So this is the way Jesus wants fasting to be done. So this talks about fasting to be seen by God and not by other people. Yet in the Bible, we read about all kinds of public fasting, even in the New Testament. 
And we went over that earlier in the series. So what the, that teaches is us is this. If someone finds out that you are fasting, you have not sinned. The value of your fast is not diminished because somebody noticed that you skipped lunch. It is possible to fast with other people. And so we must always remember being seen fasting and fasting to be seen are not the same. Being seen fasting is simply an external event. But fasting to be seen is a self-exalting motive of a dark and hard heart. So Jesus gave us instruction that will test and try our hearts. He said to us when we are fasting, do not make any effort to be seen. In fact, make many efforts in the other direction so that you are not seen. Wash and fix your hair, wash your face, so that as far as it lies within you, people will never know you were fasting. But please notice that Jesus didn't stop there. He went way beyond that and said that our goal in fasting is absolutely to be seen by God. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. What, did, what Jesus did here was to expose either the reality of God or the absence of God in our lives. Because he knows how easy it is for human beings to do religious things as long as other people are watching, especially as it pertains to the means of grace. But the reason Jesus warned us so severely was not merely the praise of men we might get from fasting. That is a great danger. But what is equally dangerous is that we might begin to think and believe that the highest and best effectiveness of our spiritual acts is on the horizontal plane among other people and not on the vertical plane with God. Here's how that logic goes. If my children see me pray at meals, it will do them good. If the people of the church see me fast, they may be inspired to fast. If my grandchildren see me read the Bible, they may be inspired to read theirs. In other words, the danger is that we might begin to feel that the value of our devotion is primarily on the horizontal plane, the impact my actions have on others as they see me engage in the means of grace and not on my own genuine hunger for God for myself. Now, they may see you and they may be encouraged to do all that. That's not the point. You, that's not what you're concentrating on. You're reading your Bible not so that they will see you and notice you and think you're great and they want to copy you. That's not why you read your Bible. You read your Bible to get something for yourself from God. I can wait. Right? Right. And if you don't do that, after a while, the only thing you're doing is to try to impress other people with your spirituality. And I'm asking, how's that any different than what the Pharisees were doing? It's not. This is the pitfall that many in the ministry make. And it is why the Apostle Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 9, 27. I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. I've actually known people in the ministry who didn't think they could ever admit a fault or even repent because it would be a bad testimony to the people they were shepherding. And so they kept it all quiet as sin continued to eat their souls until it not only destroyed their ministry, but destroyed their families as well. So the danger is that all of our life starts to be justified and understood simply on the horizontal plane 
for how it may affect other people. And when that happens, God becomes a secondary person in the living out of our godly lives. And the longer this danger goes on, the further away God gets. Many times church leaders think God is important only because he wants to do all kinds of things for other people. Yet God himself is gradually falling out of the picture with those people as being the focus of everything they believe and teach and do. Anybody been in church more than a year, you know the slogans. You can, you can, you can talk. You've been around insurance people. Brother Rich used to be a, a stockbroker. Stockbrokers have, have certain words they use all the time. And every stockbroker knows the words. Nobody else does, but all the stockbrokers know it. Everybody sells insurance, has certain term, terms they use. Nobody knows what they're talking about except other insurance people. Well, church people have things they say. And nobody has a clue what we're talking about except other church people. That's called church ease. And it, it's just as, it's, it's as useless as the day is long when you're talking to people that don't go to church and hadn't read their Bible. Let me say this to you. I'll even go further and say this. There's a whole bunch of people that do read their Bible that have no idea how to explain justification by faith alone, which is the heart of the biblical gospel. There's people that have been to church 40 years and they have no idea the difference between being born again, justified, and adopted is. And they've been taught. It's in the Bible. They read their Bibles, they pray, they're probably justified and adopted and, and born again. But they can't even explain it. That's not okay. When you read 500-year-old catechisms for children that go into deeper revelation than most sermons to adults in, in the modern church. We need to step it up about five notches, beloved. I'm serious. People, I can't tell you how many people come to me. Oh, brother, brother, you can't expect people to sit in a chair longer than 20 minutes. People are not going to sit still and, and, and hear you talk for an hour. That depends on how hungry you are. If you're not hungry for God, 10 minutes is too long. Your mind's going to be on the game anyway. Right. But if you're hungry for God, four hours would not be enough. You'd be still hungry at the end of it. Amen. I was preaching a funeral one time. And I got up behind the pulpit to preach a funeral, and a deacon of a Baptist church, he wasn't in this church, he was, he was right on the end chair. And as soon as he sat down, he goes like this. He's telling me he's timing me and to not preach too long. I got right out of the pulpit, I walked right away. I said, don't you ever do that to me again. I'll preach five hours. Try me. I said it real loud, too, so everybody could hear it. The idea, the idea, the idea of doing that in, 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 a, in a, a God just died. His family's in grief, and he's going he to put a stopwatch on me? No, no, no. But I didn't go to seminary, so I have an excuse. I don't have any initials after my name at all. I, have, I made some cards at one time, and I put, I said, put Blair Bradley, comma, RNG. And I, what, what is, that? is that a new designation? What is that? What is that? I said, it means real nice guy. Amen. I'm a real nice guy. Means nothing. The guy over in Ocean Springs that had, he had a whole wall covered in his degrees. It took a whole wall. I could put all my degrees in my back pocket 
and he had a whole wall, all these certifications he had and all this stuff. He was a guy stealing money from everybody over in Ocean Springs. Yeah. And I used to go to the Homes of Grace and preach on Mondays, Monday nights, and he was there for some of those sermons because that was required by the court that he, I guess they're trying to get him saved. I don't know. So in his mercy, Jesus tries and tests our deceptive hearts to make sure that God, just God, only God, that God himself is our sufficiency, our joy, and our crown. And nowhere is this more important than when nobody else knows what we're doing like fasting. So when nobody asks, hey, Brother Blair, how are you getting along with your fast? No one even knows. No one except God. So I see Jesus calling us all into a radical orientation on God himself, just God. Another way this could be said is how the unknown writer put it in Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So the way we can live in this world filled with sinners and injustice and pain and agony and shame and fear and wickedness and not allow secret sin to destroy us and not grow weary and not lose heart is by constantly fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Hallelujah. Yes. I believe that God is pushing us to have a real, utterly authentic, personal relationship with the one true and living God. So if God is not real to you, it will be utterly miserable to endure something difficult with God as the only one who knows. It will all seem very pointless because the whole range of horizontal possibilities will be nullified because no one knows what you are experiencing. So God desires that as a church, we reach a place where all that matters is God, who he is, what he thinks, what he has spoken, what he has done and will do, that is the Father's reward. And nothing will help us receive that reward any better than by fasting. So now let's focus on the last part of verse 18 where Jesus promised, your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Faith testifies that we do not believe that Jesus is a liar. Faith also testifies that we have become persuaded through many dangers, toils, and snares that Jesus is good for his word. And the promise Jesus makes here about what God will do for those who focus vertically on him alone and those who do not need the praise of other people to make their dedication to God worthwhile. The Lord Christ said, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now in my opinion, the word reward in the NASB is a little too impersonal because it seems to suggest a business deal. We do the work of fasting, and God rewards us with the benefits. And if we're not careful, we might think that we earn this reward, which would also mean two other things. Number one, God owes this reward to us. And number two, we deserve to receive it, which would mean things like grace, mercy, and even faith would take a back seat at best or be non-existent at worst. I categorically reject that understanding. 
Yes, the promise has been made and is irrevocable. But the only reason we achieve anything in God is by borrowing more of his grace, mercy, and faith. In other words, we should believe and trust that the promise Jesus made here is for us. Yes, but we should also believe and trust that nothing can be done for God or for our own benefit in God that is done any other way than by his grace, through his gift of faith, empowered by his mercy, and to his glory. So we do not need for God to merely tell us what to do. We also need his grace and mercy along with his gift of faith to be both able and willing to actually do what he has told us to do. So Jesus is telling us that God sees us when we fast. And he sees that we have a deep longing that is compelling us to fast. And he sees that our heart is not seeking after the ordinary pleasures of human admiration and applause. He sees that we are acting not out of our own strength to impress others with our discipline, but we act in abject weakness, crying out to God about our need and our great longing, begging him to move on our prayers. And when Almighty God hears and sees all of this, he responds and he acts. Praise the Lord. But just what is the reward that Jesus promised from the Father? Might it be the praise of men? We would make a clown out of God if we tried to use him as the tool to get what we really want instead of him, which is the praise of people. So that's not the reward that God gives. Well, what about money? No, because the very next verse warns us against laying up treasures on the earth and says for us to lay up treasures in heaven where there is no earthly currency except faith, hope, and love. I suggest the best place to find out the reward of our fasting is to look right here in what has come to be called the Sermon on the Mount. For example, the prayer that Jesus just taught us to pray in Matthew 6, 9 through 13 begins with four main longings, that God's name would be hallowed or revered or revered. Number two, that God's kingdom would come. Number three, that God's will would be done on the earth the way it's done in heaven. And number four, that we would be so empowered to forgive those who have wronged us to the same extent we want to be forgiven by God for the wrongs we have done. So I would suggest that these things are the main rewards that God gives for our fasting. We fast out of longing for God's name to be known and cherished and honored. We long for God's dominion to be extended and then consummated in history. We long for God's will to hold sway everywhere with the same devotion and urgency that the inexhaustible angels show sleeplessly in heaven forever and ever. And then the proof that we are truly saved and are on the right path as it pertains to fasting is that we are both able and willing to forgive those who have wronged us. Yes, God gives us many, many specific things through fasting, and it is not wrong to seek specifically for his help in every area of our lives through this means of fasting. But those four petitions, the hallowing of God's name, the seeking of God's kingdom, the doing of God's will on the earth, the ability to forgive, those four administer the test that will determine if all other things we long for are expressions of these. So do we want our sons and daughters saved because that would hallow God's name or make us look good? Do we want North Korea and Iran to open for the sake of the advance of the kingship of Jesus? Do we want upright and godly leaders in our government because God's holy revealed will for his creation is at stake? 
Do we want the people of the Covenant of Peace Church to be revived and awakened with divine power, love, and joy because it glorifies the name of God and advances His kingdom and brings about His will in the earth? That is what Jesus is calling us to, a radically God-oriented life that will include radical God-oriented forgiveness and fasting. So for the sake of your own soul and in response to Jesus and for the advancement of the kingdom of God's great saving purpose and to glorify his name, we must fast and we must fix our hair and we must wash our face and we must not appear to men as though we are fasting and let the Father who sees in secret see you open your heart of yearning for him and to him with fasting. And the Father who sees in secret, the one who is brimming with many rewards for your joy and glory, will reward you. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, make us this kind of people. Oh God, change us to where this church, this people, these leaders can be like this. In Jesus Christ's most precious name. Amen.